Hey, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you have joined us. So July 31st marks the end of the eviction moratorium that was implemented by the Center for Disease Control. It was put in place last September, and it was supposed to end last month, but at the very last minute, the CDC extended it one last time. This moratorium, in addition to many others that are imposed by states and by judges, aimed to prevent homelessness and displacement and overcrowding in apartments and homeless shelters during the worst parts of the pandemic. Various other measures have also been put in place, like rental assistance and legal aid, all of which have kept eviction notices from being filed by landlords and prevented people from actually facing the reality of losing their homes. But as this temporary measure nears its conclusion, it really raises an important question. What kinds of social safety nets might be worth extending permanently even after the pandemic is over? What are the kinds of human rights and values we want to carry forward as a society that has condemned so many to cycles of poverty that are largely imposed by systems that keep the poor disempowered and disenfranchised? Here to talk with me about the possibility of reducing evictions here in Michigan now and in the future is someone who's been working on and researching the subject very closely. Dr. Robert Goodspeed is a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Michigan, and he recently co-published a study titled Reducing Michigan Evictions, the Pandemic and Beyond. Dr. Goodspeed, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with the CDC and why it decided to move the end of the moratorium again, and whether it's something that we might see happen yet again. In other words, that when we get to July 31st, the CDC might say, look, we're, we're really not ready to go back to the world as it existed before the pandemic, and uh, we want to go another month. Is, is that something that you're anticipating? Yeah, just, just on that in particular, um, based on the information you know, I, I'm hearing, um, uh, it, it's but what people are saying is it seems unlikely that there'll be another extension. Um, and um, but I think uh, that's not to say there could there won't be other things happening. And, and really, uh, almost as significant as as the moratorium, um, it has been the creation of the COVID emergency rental assistance program, um, which has significant funds um, and is still ramping up um, across the state. So, you know, eviction, there's so much has happened in the last year, so many new programs and changes. Um, and so, for example, if, if um, tenants are um, caught up in eviction and they apply for that program, the courts will issue a stay in their case um, up to 45 days. Um, so I think regardless of uh, assuming the, the moratorium isn't extended, um, hopefully that, that program and some of the changes adopted by the court system will um, allow vulnerable tenants to buy some time and will um, you know, per, uh, hopefully avoid uh, this kind of tsunami. We know there's thousands of eviction orders that have been issued um, that uh, you know, are sort of floating around out there. We have no idea how many of those um, the, the uh, tenants have been able to either get assistance through the programs um, or just scrape together enough money to, to kind of pay up um, or move on their own um, and therefore you know, won't actually result in, in the need to have an eviction. Mm. 
So what has been the effect of these of these moratoriums and these last minute extensions? How many people are affected by this and maybe staying in their homes uh, because this is still in place? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to set the context, I want to back up. My first foray into this topic you know, occurred before the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, and it was around um, uh, we, uh, the National Eviction Lab website published some data about evictions, and um, I was talking to Elizabeth Benton, an attorney collaborator of mine with all of this research, and we were looking at the data from Michigan, and we knew it was flawed. And so, um, you know, no one had any numbers, and it was a complete question mark about how big the problem was here. And the, the legal aid attorneys sort of had some insights, um, but there were no numbers. So we spent a year um, getting data from the state court administrative office, and what we found, frankly, surprised us. We found the um, eviction rate here, which is, you know, the, the number of cases over the rental housing units was 17%. That means one in six rental units on average, every year gets an eviction. And, um, and you know, that basically in our um, recent report you mentioned, we show that in 2019, the state's running between 10 and 15,000 eviction cases a year. And from the statewide data, we um, didn't know exactly what percentage of those go all the way through and result in eviction. We think it's around a third. Um, so that's, you know, over 100,000 cases a year. That's tens of thousands easily of, of families. And um, and really, when we, we wanted to kind of dive deeper, so we took a random sample of cases in Washtenaw County. Most of those cases are on the east side of the county, but we you know, sampled from all of the courts in the county. And what we learned was most of the eviction cases were for non-payment of rent. Um, very few had attorneys. Um, statewide, in the statewide data, only about 4.8% um, of uh, tenants have attorneys. And um, the cases were about pretty small amounts of money on, you know, almost uh, the most cases were for a month's rent. On average, it was a little bit over a month's rent. So, mm. so it's, you know, really the picture here is of um, financially marginal families that are kind of making it month to month and they have an unexpected expense um, or something happens in, in their family and they uh, then next thing you know, they're being, they're being evicted. So it's not that landlords are very generous in letting people sit around in their apartments for months on end without paying rent. And, and so I, you know, I think that kind of sets the context. Um, uh, the report shows, I mean, of course, the first thing that happened was the courts actually closed, so no one could even file an eviction case. Yeah. So last summer, there's you know, almost no cases at all. Um, but then the state used some of the relief funds from the first bill to create and a statewide eviction diversion program, which, you know, we had all these recommendations we'd finished before the pandemic that were quite aggressive about what could be done. And, uh, you know, kind of by coincidence, um, history provided the kind of moment where there's the political support and the resources to implement some of the ideas. So one thing we had thrown in the report, we said every court in the whole state should have an eviction diversion program, like, ha, like that's ever going to happen. Well, that's exactly what did happen. Um, and, you know, they uh, some of the funds were used to expand um, the ability of legal aid providers to provide assistance. Um, and, you know, once courts reopen, um, we had legal aid attorneys kind of sitting in the virtual courtroom in Zoom. Um, so folks who had no previous contact um, could jump into a, into a side conversation and um, really get some assistance about, you know, what's going on with your family. You know, maybe you're, if, you, if you're lost your job because of COVID, did you know you can apply for different funding and let's, um, let's work with you? And, and in combination with that, the court system did make some really beneficial uh, changes. So the first hearing became 
um, just an informational hearing, um, so you didn't have to like prevent facts on the spot and kind of defend yourself. Um, that's extremely useful. And then they issued an administrative order um, uh, instructing courts to extend cases so that people can apply to the to the assistance that's available. So, kind of all these different things combined. So this is why we had to write a you know 30-page report about what's happened in one year. Um, really suppressed the number of cases. So we're back up to um, between five and ten thousand. It kind of is bopping around. Um, when the the EDP program ended, there was a gap until. Um, the COVID emergency rental assistance program was spun up because of the, from the new federal um, relief bill. And so, but now that is operating. And, and so we saw both the number of cases as well as the percent that are going through to eviction kind of creeping up in the spring and in March and April. Um, but those, um, the, the new program seems to be kind of keeping, keeping things a, a little bit lower. And I mean, of course, the, another X factor here is that the, um, uh, cash assistance that you know the relief bill provided, and the hot economy and increasing wages are all, you know, kind of providing some some assistance to these families. But I think the question mark is kind of how long it's going to last, um, and you know whether what uh, we're doing is going to be enough to uh, keep keep numbers at a permanently lower level. Mm. So, so I want to talk just a little about the ideas that uh, you put out in. Uh, your study, and I, mm-hmm. and, and I want to talk about them in the context of the idea of substantive change in this in this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, mm-hmm. in the open, I, I, I talked about the idea that um, you know that that we might think about this entire issue differently because of the things that happened in the pandemic, mm-hmm. and, and and so I want you to focus just a little on what those opportunities are and, and, and how we might take advantage of them. I mean, uh, eviction is a, a really cruel part of uh, the economic system in our country, in my opinion, uh, and, and it's one of the things that, uh, that contributes to the cycle of poverty, right? Uh, it's one of the things that keeps people poor. Uh, if we have a chance to, to really go in a different direction, I think that's, that's something we have to take quite seriously. I, you know, and I absolutely agree. So, you know, what are some of the things um, we'd be looking at? You know, I, I think one aspect is making permanent some uh, pre-pandemic. There were actually some um, resources available, um, either from um, housing funds, um, you know, that governments have, or from charities that are basically emergency assistance funds. And um, and so I think some. Uh, effort to permanently institutionalize those funds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think permanently expand the access to counsel is going to be critical. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, you want to empower those who can to apply for assistance that's going to you know, bridge them month to month as easily as possible. But you certainly have a lot of tenants who have counterclaims, who have um, who are being, you know, uh, are involved in some kind of scam, or who have a landlord um, who's who's not upholding a lease, and so the, for those folks, you definitely need legal assistance. And and so we we saw it during the EDP program, um, it, the numbers aren't exactly comparable because the old pre-pandemic numbers it's like full representation, about five percent, um, but um, about thirty percent of all landlord-tenant cases filed 
um, the tenants had some degree of legal assistance. There's a lot of limited representation, you know, kind of a couple quick meetings, um, you know, just help you fill out the paperwork, um, not like, you know, I'm, I'm your lawyer, we're going to litigate this thing to the hilt. Um, and so, but certainly I think that's responsible in part for some of the, the better outcomes. So, so th- you know, those are all kind of more pragmatic things. I, you know, we also discuss the need for affordable housing. In the infrastructure bill, it seems possible that there could be an expansion to um, something like the Section 8 voucher program, which, you, you know, really you need not affordable housing for uh you, you know, with a, with a kind of shallow subsidy, you need affordable housing for the working poor, um, and and unfortunately, the there's a scarcity there. So those are you know a cu- couple of the different um, ideas that come out. I mean, we also say um, that the state can, could consider their own moratorium, um, and uh, you know I think as, as as critical to all these pieces as we emerge is to continue to track. Um, the numbers and track what's what's happening and use that as a guide for whether the policies and, and reforms that have been put into place are are satisfactory. Mm. I'm talking with Dr. Robert Goodspeed. He's an associate professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Michigan, whose recent study demonstrates different ways that Michigan can maintain lower eviction rates. We're talking about the eviction moratorium, which has been extended by the CDC through July 31st, which gives us another month before they might resume. Uh, We're talking about what happens when evictions come back and what the opportunities might be to permanently uh, institutionalize, I guess, uh, some of the things that we have seen developed during the pandemic to, to keep more people in their homes. Uh, Dr. Goodspeed was also doing work before the pandemic, looking at various ways to make it harder for people to lose their homes. Um, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what you think of the eviction moratorium and the fact that the CDC has extended it yet another month. Uh, we'd love to hear if this moratorium has affected you. Are you somebody who's been able to stay in your home because of the eviction moratorium. Um, uh, We'd also love to hear from landlords uh, who are the flip side of uh, this issue and how you have been able to manage uh, during during the moratorium. Uh, How hard has that been? Uh, have you been able to maintain the properties uh, that you own? Uh, also, give, give us a call and let us know if you think that we ought to be thinking about all of this differently. That the idea that if you are poor or uh, if you are temporarily in a cash crunch, uh, if something happens in your life that uh, that requires you to spend money that you would have spent on rent on something else, that you lose your home. Do you think that is a reasonable way for us to conduct uh, our lives as Americans? Is that a reasonable thing uh, to impose on the most vulnerable people in our society? And if not, how do you think it should work? What, what, we ought to, what should we be doing to devise a system that's uh, a little different? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Robert, I want to talk to you about the landlord side of things. You and uh, Dr. Doer uh, write in your your study 
that landlord opposition to the moratorium and the emergency funding programs has increased over time. These programs are intended to benefit landlords and do so in most cases. Uh, how do these programs benefit landlords and why are they set up to benefit landlords? Uh, talk to us about that side of uh, this issue. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so Margie Dewar is a faculty colleague here. She was a co-author along with Robert Gillette, a legal aid attorney. So, so you know, we're, uh, you know, we're kind of honest in that the um, we coordinated through the state planning body, which is um, the you know the legal aid and um, indigent defense uh, kind of network. Um, but we have so we didn't do extensive outreach with the landlord community. But they, you know, I, I we've heard a few things here and there. I mean, what, one thing is the the uh, CIRA program, um, you know, it, it, it keeps landlords whole. So I think certainly their income has going to be lumpy. You know, if you have a tenant who's missed rent for a month or two, they have to apply for the program, and you know, you have to wait for your funds. But then, um, you know, it uh, they do come in, and then and then um, I don't have the details right at my fingertips, but I was told the funds also go forward in time. So so if you have a tenant who's been able to get the assistance, um, it's kind of like you know that tenant's going to be good for, good for it for a couple more months. And, and realistically, you know, most tenants are generally able to afford it, and, and, um, and so they have time to you know, um, you know, either get a new job or rebalance their budget and, and um, you know, go, go forward. So, you know, I think that's one piece of it. Um, certainly, landlords are very diverse. You know, the, the, the large corporate landlords, one or two tenants, you know, miss rent, who cares? You know, it's not a big deal as long as they get it in the end. But at, we absolutely recognize that smaller landlords are going to be more affected. And, and, um, and so I think that's why, you know, really a, a major problem I've heard about, you know, we ha- don't really know how well the Sierra program is running. The dashboard, um, they they're said they're going to create a public dashboard. Um, we've heard that there's it's slow getting the aid out. And so, you know, I think that seems like an area where there needs to be some focus because it's going to do double benefit. It's going to take people out of limbo, get their cases resolved, um, make them, you know, kind of feel they have stable housing so they can, you know, move ahead with their lives. And it's also going to help those landlords who aren't going to have to wait um, for the, the paperwork to be processed and the payments issued. Now, I recognize it's a lot of challenges to make that happen, but I think, you know, in terms of if there's elected officials on the line or, um, you, you know, folks in different cities that have high eviction rates, our first report ranked you know the different different cities. Um, you know uh, that's one area where where folks can focus. It's going to help both your property owners as well as as your tenants. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know kind of our perspective. I mean, I think also another interesting twist here is you know pre-pandemic talking to legal aid attorneys. They you know often the um, the the landlords really perf- they want to have their tenants represented because they know it's going to mean. So yeah, sometimes it means that they're um, you, you know, the kind of uh, law is going to be in, in force, and, you know, they, um, if they've made some mistakes, they're going to be held accountable to it. But it also means that they're more likely, the tenant, to get aid, uh, to um, help them negotiate more effectively, kind of resolve the, resolve the case um, more quickly and more easily than uh, an unrepresented tenant who might be hard to reach. You know, they're juggling a lot of balls, not know how to apply for programs, apply unsuccessfully, et cetera. So, so that's, you know, another thing here. There there has been, I, th- I think, you know, there should be landlord support for, you know, making permanent the kind of some degree of um, eviction diversion assistance or even legal aid. Um, although, you know, once in a while it might 
might be uh, unpleasant for them if they aren't following the letter of the law. But in, in a lot of other cases, it's really going to help them because it's going to help their tenants um, you know, stay housed and get assistance. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with uh, Dr. Robert Goodspeed of the University of Michigan. We will also get to your comments from Frank and Livonia, Karen in Ann Arbor, Glenn in Shelby Township. We will be up first on the phones. We also got some social media comments to share. If you want to join the conversation, again, 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313 577 1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Dr. Robert Goodspeed. He's Associate Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Michigan. And he's got a recent study that demonstrates different ways that Michigan can lower eviction rates. Uh, The eviction moratorium by the CDC is in place until July 31st. After that, we don't know what will happen, although Dr. Goodspeed says it's likely we won't get another extension. And so the question is, what does eviction look like post-pandemic? And what can we do to make it look a little different than it did before, maybe a little more humane. Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call. Let us know what you think of evictions generally. What do you think of the moratorium that's been in place since last September because of the pandemic uh, to try to protect people's homes uh, at a time of other crisis? Uh, And let us know if you think we need a rethink of this entire issue. Should people not face this kind of housing insecurity uh, because they're poor? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you that way. Let's start with Karen in Ann Arbor. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Hi. Um, I just had a couple of quick uh, comments. Um, I remember when all this first started and I was attempting to kind of let my family and friends know through Facebook, whatever the attorney general would announce, uh, moratoriums or extensions and things of that nature. And sometimes a lot of people would not know. And they didn't, I mean, some of the things that are on the news, they, you know, flash really quickly and you, you don't get the information. So what ended up happening was through my own podcast, I tried to make announcements and do interviews with different people hmm. to kind of get the information out there. And that kind of still was um, very short-lived with everybody being afraid. So I noticed that when I would give the resources and someone would call me and say, well, so I built the Sarah form out, what do I do next? They didn't know that they would have to contact the landlord. The landlord would have to do their part. Some of them kind of would not do it. And then I would just say, put your application in anyway. But what I found was that when the response came from whatever county you live in, you're supposed to turn this app in, the Salvation Army would call, but then the person would miss the call. And when they tried to call back, there was um, 
an automated system that would not allow them to get a call through, so therefore they would miss the opportunity to take advantage of the SARA program, although they did their part. The other part of it was that the uh, free legal aid lines would automatically have an auto-answering service that would not allow them to get through to anybody for free legal aid because they were facing eviction. And um, so at that point, I would just tell them, keep trying and call maybe the courts if you're taking the court and ask for that extension and let them know what happened. So these things that are that are happening is like the resources there, but there is no way to be able for the person that's in the trouble to follow through, to get a follow through or to even get or figure out where to go so that they could get the help they would need. Hmm. Yeah, Karen, I, I really appreciate your calling and sharing that experience. I mean, I love the kind of frontline uh, role that, that you seem to be playing here and that, that's giving you information that's really important, I think, to, to listeners. So Dr. Goodspeed, uh, respond to what Karen's talking about here. It seems like there are some gaps in in the system that we have set up to be able to make sure people even know what they're supposed to do. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I just say, Karen, thank you so much for your efforts, and it's very in line with what we're seeing and what we're we're saying. You know, our first recommendation in the in the um, section about the SEER program is to develop and implement a communication outreach plan. And I, kind of embedded in what you're saying, I think it also speaks to the need for there be people available to assist uh, tenants who can do some parts themselves. Um, but are going to need help with the the follow up, with following all the different rules, the evolving you know um, orders, et cetera. It's a very dynamic space, and it's unreasonable if somebody is working, you know, or a parents of children, which is you know half the people who benefited from the eviction diversion program um, were were children in those households. So you know, it's it's like uh, it's not. Um, reasonable to expect them to kind of be legal experts and follow this through. So I have, we absolutely have recommendations about, um, you know, approving information. Uh, folks on the line, you, um, there's a website, Michigan Legal Help. You should contact your local legal aid office and directly. And also um, there will be legal aid attorneys. If you have a court date, you get a notice um, and you show up and there's an attorney there who wants to talk to you, definitely take advantage of that and, and talk with them, and, and um, you'll be able to get that personal assistance um, to follow through to make sure you've applied and done it correctly. So, you know, I, um, again, thank you so much for what you're doing, and it speaks to some of the challenges we're facing as we, you know, try to develop and implement um, a whole, you know, different way of providing assistance. It's going to be bumpy, and um, we're hopeful that our ideas and efforts from folks like yourself and court officials, I think, who are really trying to do the right thing will be beneficial. But at the end of the end of the day, the court is running a legal process. They're not providing assistance. It's really the legal aid um, staff or other, uh, you know, if you have um, um, a live in a place that has um, a government involved in uh, housing assistance, they're the folks whose job it is to help tenants apply successfully to these programs. Yeah. Yeah. Karen, again, really appreciate the call and the information. Let's go to Frank in Livonia. Frank, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Stephen. Uh, I was formerly a landlord, and I guess, um, you know, I've gone through some eviction uh, procedures. We never actually evicted anybody. But, uh, you know, there's extensive uh, law that protects the tenant and the uh, landlords, and there's procedures set, you know, to evict somebody. Um, You know, I, I, I... I guess my question would be, 
Uh, you know, have you looked at these individual landlords? There's so much inconsistency from city to city on, you know, rentals. You know, are they registered with the city? I, I have a feeling that there's a, there's a significant number of uh, rental units that are not registered with the city, uh, you know, because you, uh, a rental unit, the landlord can't claim the uh, property tax exemption. Uh, so they don't do it. They're just, you know, they're kind of doing it all underneath the table. So, um, so there's a lot of things going on. I think what are going forward is to is to get some consistency across the state mm. on, uh, you know, these things and to have a, you know, to make sure that landlords are registered and that tenants have uh, access. You know, even if it was just a centralized website, these are, you know, it said these are your. Uh, rights and responsibilities right. as, a, as a tenant. Right. Frank, uh, really appreciate uh, the call and your perspective as well, really different from uh, from Karen, the sort of, sort of other side of of the equation. Uh, Dr. Goodspeed, what can we draw from uh, what, what Frank's talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. I've got my report here. We have a recommendation, um, you know, for the legislature, you know, there is this um, link to you want um, to create incentives for to, uh, landlords to be following local laws and and of course they you know um, know the jurisdiction their their um, properties are in and they can reach out and, and learn about them perhaps that should be made a little easier but we we also propose the legislature explore denying um, eviction court relief for landlords whose property is not complying with either building codes or um, in some some jurisdictions they have registration requirements etc and I, I don't know the exact details I think there's been a move towards that in Detroit where they're really trying to get um, their rental ordinance um, enforced much more consistently and have all units um, registered and you know use that to guarantee um, that they're habitable and they meet the city's requirements so so that yeah there you know that is an aspect of this and I completely agree with you of, of how you know, important it is for them to be aware of um, the local regulations and comply. And we, you know, I think because evictions coming out of state law, there's an opportunity to kind of, you know, make that uh, consistent. Okay. Dr. Robert Goodspeed, a professor of regional and urban planning at the University of Michigan. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Stephen. Okay, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to change the subject a bit. We're going to check in on the aftermath of this monumental flooding that took place in Metro Detroit a couple weeks ago, but we're going to look specifically at the effect on Detroiters in some of the poorest parts of our city. A really important conversation about how we need to do better with infrastructure and support for people because of these increasingly violent and destructive storms. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.